We spend upwards of $60 billion on medical research in the U.S. each year. Does all this money benefit patients? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients by repurposing current therapies for new uses. Joining us to discuss the genesis and mission of the Myelin Repair Foundation is Russell Rusty Bromley, Chief Operating Officer of the Myelin Repair Foundation. Rusty was formerly the CEO of Lab Velocity Incorporated, an internet information portal for the life science research community. Prior to that, he was the CEO of Berkshire Holding Corporation and had 17 years with American Hospital Supply Corporation and Baxter Healthcare. Rusty holds a degree in biochemistry from Rice University and has joined us to talk about the way in which medical research does and doesn't get treatments to patients. Rusty, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks, Bruce. Great to be here. So who are the major players in medical research? Oh, boy. You know, we look at medical research as being a value chain that begins typically in academic research laboratories where scientists are trying to push back the frontiers of what's known about uh, human biology and continues, uh, in the best cases, through a discovery process that would lead to treatment targets for various diseases and ultimately then drug discovery, development of those drugs, manufacturing clinical trials, and eventually reaches the patient. Sadly, that continuum consumes between 30 and 50 years today, and not because there's anybody doing anything that they shouldn't be or that their motives are not most desirable. It's simply because of the way in which the system has evolved over time. We chose to begin as far upstream in this value chain as possible, and that was what could we do to accelerate the early stages of research so that the most promising ideas would be available to industry to develop new treatments as quickly as possible and that those opportunities would be as robust as possible to try to reduce the dramatic failure rate that exists in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry today. What would you say that failure rate is? If uh, our physician audience is out there knowing they have lots of drugs and therapies at their disposal, in order for those to get to the market, how many fell by the wayside? This has been a really hot topic the last few years. And as I know you're aware, there have been various studies that have been done that have predicted that the cost to bring a single drug to market is between $800 million and $1.7 billion. The reason for this, based on some work that we did with the Boston Consulting Group, is that it takes 360 targets being identified by industry to have one successful drug make it to the market. I mean, that's an attrition rate of 99.6%. There's no other industry in the world that would be sustainable with that type of failure rate. Some of the reason that there's failures there, structure that you were talking about, where there's really not the right connection between academic research and the pharmaceutical companies? Are they identifying targets that aren't good? Or are these really good targets and it's just very hard to get a drug and a target together to treat a disease? It's truly a combination of both, Bruce, because, you know, first of all, academic scientists are driven by intellectual curiosity. Their objective is to uncover new information, new knowledge in their particular field of interest and publish it in a prestigious scientific journal. What that means is they want every experiment to be cutting edge. They always want to be doing something that's new and uncovering new ground. And while the pharmaceutical industry appreciates the work that's being done, if they're going to invest $100 million or even $800 million into bringing a new drug to market, they want to have some assurance that that investment is going to be well-placed. 
And so they will typically wait until a promising discovery is reinforced two or three times in the scientific literature before they'll jump in and start evaluating it as a target. And that reinforcing process can take anywhere from 15 to 20 years. Sadly, the information that comes out of the academic research process is generally not up to the standards of rigor that industry needs to commit to a full development process. And this is why we see an enormous attrition rate between target identification and target validation. In fact, fewer than 10% of all the targets that have ever been identified have actually made it through the validation process and entered the drug development process. Is there another reason why cures and treatments don't get to patients based on the size of the patient population? Absolutely. I mean, let's face it. While the academic scientists are most interested in publishing in scientific journals, pharmaceutical and biotech companies are interested in selling products that they can make money and generate a return for their shareholders. And so the large pharmaceutical companies have become based almost entirely on blockbuster drugs. If the market potential for your drug isn't at least a billion dollars a year in global sales, it's very difficult with the current cost of development to bring something forward and still have it be profitable. The existing process also takes a very long time. From the time that a target is validated until a trial drug gets into the marketplace can be 12 to 15 years. And by that time, you run out of patent life. And so you might only have three to five years that you really can make a significant amount of money in order to recoup that long-term billion-dollar investment that you just made. So all those factors are influencing this. And is there a way to shorten that time period and accelerate research? We think there's several ways to do it, Bruce. I mean, ultimately, we want to reduce the cost of this whole process so it doesn't take a billion-dollar market to be attractive anymore, so that you can take on smaller indications and orphan diseases and still have it be a commercially tractable activity. So how do we do that? Well, the first thing we do is we accelerate the basic science process by doing it as a team sport that's fully integrated as opposed to individual labs working in isolation. And we've shown over the last three and a half years that you can collapse that early stage discovery process by using a managed focused effort from 15 or 20 years down to three. The next thing is by working to do validation studies at a very early point in time and weed out the ideas that aren't going to have uh, attractability. In other words, targets, for instance, that may not be druggable. We can reduce the failure rate of industry by a factor of, we think, anywhere from 8 to 10x. Again, that means the investment to bring something forward is dramatically reduced and therefore makes smaller markets much more attractive to pharmaceutical and biotech companies. And the way you do these, collapsing the the time frame and uh, doing the validation, is this something that's just unique to myelin repair or is this something that could be used in any disease discovery? This has applicability for any disease because it's really just applying basic business principles and using the Silicon Valley startup model to organize things and to facilitate the process in a way that allows each of the participants to focus on their core competencies and derive maximum efficiency throughout the system. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I am speaking with Rusty Bromley, Chief Operating Officer of the California-based Myelin Repair Foundation, an international foundation whose mission is to find a way to repair the myelin loss during multiple sclerosis and other diseases. And Rusty is talking with us about the competing priorities in medical research. So, Rusty, how do the intellectual property and publication issues support or impede getting better treatments to patients? Yeah, unfortunately, there are conflicting priorities there, Bruce. If, if I'm an academic medical researcher, the way that I ensure getting renewed funding 
from the NIH or any of the disease foundations is by publishing my work in the most prestigious scientific journals. So my motivation is to get the information out into the public domain as quickly as I can and make sure that I publish before my competitors. In the pharmaceutical industry, if there's intellectual property involved, which there frequently is, they want to make sure that there is appropriate patent protection in place to assure that they can make a profit once they've spent 10 or 15 years and a billion dollars developing a drug. So these are at, at counter purposes. One of the very first things that we addressed in the Myelin Repair Foundation Accelerated Research Collaboration Model was assisting our scientists in identifying intellectual property that results from our research and rapidly protecting it as is appropriate uh, in a way that did not slow down or disrupt the publication process. So our scientists get the best of both worlds. They get the patent opportunities that will help feed the system and get the pharmaceutical industry to be able to operate in a more efficient manner. And they get the recognition that comes from the, uh, the academic community for really great scientific efforts. So the word collaboration is in your model. Tell us about this collaboration Who's a part of it? Uh, what are the names of your scientists? And how did you get them together? You know, it's interesting because a lot of people in academia talk about collaboration. And the definition that they have of collaboration and what we use in, in industry is quite different. In fact, I'd almost say it's become more of a co-op in the fact that all of our investigators work together as a team as opposed to each one individually uh, off doing their own thing. So we have some wonderful people. It's been my pleasure to work with since 2003 that have really made a cultural transition from the traditional academic model to the collaborative model that we envisioned. And those people are Ben Barris at Stanford University, Brian Popko at the University of Chicago, Steve Miller at Northwestern here in Chicago, Bob Miller at Case Western Reserve, and the newest member of our group is Dr. Carlos Pardo at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Do you think this collaborative model is ever something that would grow so big that the government would embrace it or industry would embrace it? You know, we certainly hope so. And we're trying to engage both government and industry uh, as we go along at the earliest stage possible. Dr. Zerhouni at the NIH, as you know, has uh, really put a lot of focus on uh, translational research. And so the NIH has been working on building resources that will help facilitate the process. Uh, the problem is the traditional grant mechanisms really don't have a methodology for supporting a managed collaboration of this type because it does require active management. And by management, we mean facilitating the process so that scientists can focus just on doing great science and somebody else with professional management abilities is taking care of all the other things that go around that. So how much does it cost to support this collaboration and why does it make more sense to do it as a nonprofit corporation versus a for-profit business? The reason for doing it as a nonprofit is that we really began at a very early stage, far before we would have a suitable portfolio of intellectual property to justify going out and raising either venture capital or, or public capital. Surprisingly, it doesn't cost that much to do. I mean, <clears throat> as a foundation, our uh, operating overhead is about 13%. And even within our programs, the program cost of actively managing the research at multiple institutions and with a variety of other organizations uh, is only about 10 or 12 percent. So people think it's a lot more expensive, I think, than it is, and they don't recognize the value that this active management component can bring in terms of pulling all the pieces together and helping take friction out of the system. So take out your crystal ball and give us a quick wild-ass guess about when is the first 
uh, drug going to come out that's going to help patients repair myelin based on this? I don't need a crystal ball. You can go to our website because uh, our mission says that we would identify, validate, and license our first program for commercial development by July of 2009 and work with the commercial entities to ensure that that came to market by 2019. Uh, We believe that today with the cooperation of industry and the Food and Drug Administration and physicians and patients when we get the clinical trials that we can actually beat that goal and we look forward to everyone's support to do that. The U.S. makes huge investments in medical research every year, but it seems as if few breakthroughs actually get to the patients. Chief Operating Officer of the California-based Myelin Repair Foundation for discussing the issues that make it so hard to get treatments to patients and some of the alternatives being introduced by the Myelin Repair Foundation and other innovative research organizations. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatments for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Stay on top of the latest medical topics by visiting our new website at ReachMD.com, where we welcome your questions and comments. Use the promotion code RADIO when registering online and receive six months of complete access to our on-demand library of podcasts. And thank you for listening.